0: Welcome to the Greenhouse Podcast, Hiring for What's Next. In each episode, we'll meet people at the forefront of hiring. In this series, we'll talk about hiring maturity, which is how companies move through different stages as they get better at hiring. Greenhouse president and co-founder John Strauss sits down with talent leaders to discuss their hiring maturity journeys. We'll hear how they did it and what they're focusing on now to be ready to hire for what's next for their companies. They'll share advice to help your team get better at hiring. And now, let's pass it over to John.
1: Hi there, welcome to the Hiring Maturity Podcast. This is John Strauss, co-founder and president of Greenhouse Software. My guest today is Heather Doshay from Webflow. Heather, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, John.
1: And tell us, what do you do there?
2: My official title is VP People, which is not a title. Everyone knows what that means, and it looks different from company to company. But at Webflow, I lead our teams that include talent, which is our recruiting organization, people, which is kind of what you think of as HR, and then a few other small groups that are kind of in the operations umbrella, including executive support, workplace and office management, internal events, as well as our IT organization.
1: Cool. How about, um, tell me, for or tell for folks who don't know, what is Webflow?
2: Awesome. So yeah, Webflow is the modern way to build for the web. We imagine a world where every person who uses the web also has the power to create for it, which today only about one in 400 people can code. And it's a skill that takes years to master. We look forward to a way where people can design, build, and launch websites easily um, and through drag and drop features and visual development.
1: Neat. And tell me, your story. How did you get to recruiting leadership? What was the, what's your two minute journey?
2: Oh gosh. So this is actually my second career. Um, I spent all of my twenties in university administration and I didn't actually join tech until I was 30 years old, which is Sort of a unique and rare story, Um, but when I reflected on what I love most about my first career in higher education, it was this opportunity to help people during a very important transition in their life, Um, but I found the most joy specifically with my students after they graduated college as they were entering job searches. I found it fascinating and I wanted to help, and I actually went on to get my doctorate in organizational leadership where I focused on job searches and the uh, post-university journey for early career graduates. And so I found like, you know, talent leadership is this perfect segue into how I can make that part of my actual career rather than just being a theoretical perspective. And so I actually was able to join um, a talent role at a company called Hired, which is a job search marketplace where I was able to help job seekers find success in their job search. And I sort of took off from there until I ended up in my current role.
1: Wow. That's a different, that's a very different story than the typical, like, I worked as an agency recruiter, and then I went corporate in-house and eventually became a manager. And now I'm the boss. That's pretty neat.
2: I was never an agency recruiter, although, you know, I admire people who have the grit and tenacity to continue down that path.
1: Interesting. Do you feel like you approach the job differently because of that?
2: Absolutely. Um, I think you know I, I have a little bit of a, a bias or a preference towards people who are career changers and end up in recruiting because they have a little more empathy and compassion for some of the jobs themselves. Whereas, if your entire career experience comes from sort of just knowing job searches without ever doing something outside of the recruiting field, you can become pretty single focused in how you approach the work. And, and having done another job out in the world or been on another team can be a really beneficial um, value add to a team.
1: Yeah, it that's that's neat and the and the other thing i was thinking you the other remote or interesting thing about you guys the company is fully remote right
2: we are distributed as a company. So we're about 70% around the world and 30% in our San Francisco office. Although right now we are a hundred percent distributed, just like most folks. And I'm actually always remote. I should mention if at any point during this chat, you hear a dog barking in the background, Charles Barkley is my best colleague and teammate, but he's sitting (laughs) at my feet right now and he gets excited, especially when I'm talking live on things. So um, yeah, no, we are distributed. I always am remote, um, but right now our whole team is.
1: That's neat. I mean, I think every company is, or every every kind of office type company right now is is doing this hard pivot to like, how do we be fully distributed at least for the near future? And so I'm, I'll be curious to get your guys' insights for somebody who planned to do it from the beginning, how you do it differently. Because I know, I'm talking to you in the past. I know that you guys are doing it better than most of us have have figured out.
2: Um, well, it's easier when you're when you've been doing it for longer. But for sure, right, absolutely
1: happy right. to chat about that. Cool. Well, I guess. Uh, you know, we like to do um, on this podcast is tell stories of, of how companies evolve their recruiting operation, how you go from uh, the typical kind of everybody running around uh, doing their best to keep up to building like a world class, like high functioning org. So maybe tell me the story of Webflow. What was it like when you joined? And so, yeah,
2: yeah, I, I joined about 18 months ago now. And at the time that I joined, we were about 100 team members. We had zero recruiters. We had zero people or talent people. Um, Nobody's job had any of those words in it. We had two people within operations, but they were really doing accounting and office management. um, And there was no finance team. I mean, really, recruiting was run 100% by hiring managers from start to finish. And we had no applicant tracking system in use. Um, We had a structured process, but it wasn't always consistently applied. And so I would say we were almost like a a pre-chaos state.
1: Wow. That's uh, I mean the company got pretty far though without doing any of that. It was kind of amazing.
2: Definitely. I think that's what was really good about Webflow when I joined was something was clearly working because we had really high employee retention and the team was wonderful and how did we kind of get to 100 people like this without ever having a recruiter in process um, or any documentation to even understand what was going well. Um so it was more about finding out what was right and then solving what wasn't working in order to kind of get to where we are and we're still absolutely on that journey but it's really neat to see a company get to 100 people without ever hiring a talent professional or working with one.
1: Yeah, what what was the trigger point that got them to realize, you know what, what we've been doing is great. We've built an awesome company so far, but to get further we're actually going to have to bring in specialists and make this part of their job? What what was going wrong that forced them to to make that decision?
2: Yeah, I don't know if it was anything going wrong as much as a natural evolution. You know, Webflow is a really interesting place in that we do a lot of things, not in the traditional order that I've seen at other tech startups that I worked for or worked with. Um, So I was the first executive they'd ever hired on the team outside of the three co-founders. And so to hire a VP people first is sort of a rare thing to start with. To hire your first executive at 100 team members is also a really rare thing to start with. Um, So there's a lot of uniqueness that's there. And I think ultimately what it came down to was our CEO, Vlad, who's a wonderful human, but is not a VP of people, uh, was finding that he was spending a lot of time doing that work. And so we really saw the value in bringing in this function early. It's investing in people as the most important thing, starting with talent and the hiring experience all the way through retention transitions.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay, so where so where did you begin as you were like, okay, I've got to build this function kind of from scratch at a company that's already kind of working and has been able to make lots of wonderful hires.
2: Yeah, you know, it was funny. I I thought I was going to start in one place during my interview process and then I joined and had this big aha moment and started in a totally different place. So, um, you know, it's it's funny. I did the exact same job at the company prior where I was the first people on talent hire to build things out from what sort of working but not totally formalized into a more systematic Um, approach, a more strategic approach. And when I started at Webflow, when I was interviewing, the way we framed problems during the interview process was we hire a lot of organic hires. We really want to think more about how do we strategically source people to find the best person for the job? How do we infuse, infuse diversity, equity, and inclusion into our sourcing process? All of that. And I was like, yes, this sounds so exciting. Like, Let's solve for all that. And then I joined And there was no applicant tracking system so there was actually no way to even know what was working or what wasn't working or who had even applied or what the scorecards looked like so the problem was actually that we didn't know who our best hires were or could be and we had no documentation to even know how we would understand if like what was happening on the ground and so rather than implementing a sourcing program i actually was like let's first implement all of the process and systems so that we document what's working and we understand what's not working and sourcing will absolutely play into how we approach this work but there's sort of layers and sequencing to how you build the foundation that you can build these programs on top of and so we actually had to start much earlier than i expected
1: Interesting. And, and was there like full buy-in or were they like, no, 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 we want the sourcing thing. And you're like, no, no, we got to do an ATS. And they're like, what the heck's an ATS? like how'd that, how'd that conversation go?
2: Yeah. So I think it was really important to point out all the problems that we would have to solve, including the sourcing thing and not deny that that's important. We had to actually like affirm that that was an important thing to do. But in order to do those things, you have to start with the foundations that make those programs scalable, because ultimately, when you create programs that are short term solutions, because you're just solving an immediate need, you end up having to recreate that same solution, you know, less than a year later. And so rather than creating more work was kind of just doing the sequencing work of making sure we had the right things in order. So. The first two things that I did, and I didn't get a lot of pushback on this, was hire a first senior recruiter to help build out all this stuff, as well as build out our applicant tracking system, which I know that we're here. I'm a Greenhouse customer, and we helped out with Greenhouse.
1: Oh, was there, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about resistance inside, because I know you, you know you must have a bunch of hiring managers who had made a bunch of hires on their own without you. Were they like, oh, thank God you're here. This is great. Whatever. I'll do it any way you want. Or were they saying, no, no, I've been doing it my way. I'm going to keep doing it my way.
2: Totally a mix. Um, yeah. As you can <laughs> imagine. And I, and I will say, I I take full responsibility for this dynamic, too, because when I'm a hiring manager, I fall into the same trap, which is I want the support and help of a recruiting team. But I also want to do it my way. And so ultimately, you sort of get a little bit of both, like excitement that we're here and an idea of how we're going to help without realizing how integrated the solution really has to be in a partnership between the hiring manager and the talent team. And so I think a lot of it's just affirming the desires of the folks on the team, but also bringing consultative insight to help them understand how they can best get to the actual core issue they're trying to solve for. So if the core issue is not, oh, I want sourcing done for me, the core issue is I want the best, I want to know that I'm making the best possible hire and just not relying on who's cold applied to our site. Well, sourcing for sure is one channel through which we can do that, but also we can create more rigorous processes that make sure that we have the most signal to noise in our hiring processes and that we're really thoughtful around how we attract the best organic talent through our site as well. And there's a lot of programs we can do that contribute to it. And of course, sourcing is a major one, but let's look at the whole picture and find the most impactful ways to get to those, those core goals. And generally, people are receptive at the high level. It's just when it comes down to kind of what you actually have to do on the ground, like how you actually have to do work as a hiring manager to design job descriptions in a certain way or a process in a certain way. That's where sort of the rubber hits the road and you have to have the real conversations around um, the work that needs to be done.
1: Was, was there a moment where like it clicked and it worked and some hiring managers like, oh, I see what you mean. This is actually great.
2: Uh, for sure. I think whenever a hiring manager tries something out new that was outside of what they wanted to do with a recruiter, um, they'll have those aha moments, but you kind of have to show them. You can't expect people to really see the value of your work until you bring that value. And so it's a lot of kind of building relationships and trial and error. And I will say it takes, I mean, years to get the best relationships down on a hiring front. Um, but like one example we had recently was uh, one of our recruiters worked with a technical hiring manager on the engineering side and, and He had a process that he wanted to follow and also wanted to attract a really diverse team. Um, And ultimately, that team that he was managing was was not the most diverse team in our company. In fact, it was one of the least. And what they did was typically they would open a role and then you start sourcing and then you start finding candidates for that role. But by the time you've sourced people and attracted them into taking that first call, what would end up happening is you've got a bunch of organic people who've applied in who you're already talking to and the timing is off. And so sequencing these things out is so important. And so our recruiter suggested that she maybe source a number of candidates before even opening the role so that by the time the role gets posted live, we already have a dozen or so candidates in process. And in doing so, not only was she able to show value of sourcing in a really strategic way, but she was also able to ensure that the timing of outcomes when people were applying weren't leaving those candidates that we were going out and trying to find behind or in the dust to kind of hurry along in a process they weren't quite ready for. So those kinds of things are small and they're anecdotal, but kind of systematizing those across the board throughout the organization is so huge. And I think that's where recruiting professionals can really show their value is by suggesting a different way of doing things to get to the core need that that hiring manager has.
1: That's a, that's a great one. Our team actually at Greenhouse just started doing that as well, where they're realizing that uh, you know, different sources are gonna provide you very different pools of talent. And if you just kind of wait for like, well, who applies online? It's like, that may not be the most diverse set of people. And so what you may want to do is like go proactively source because you can control who you're sourcing for um, before you actually open it publicly. It's really interesting.
2: Totally. And it's a whole different approach. I mean, it's hard to manage in that you're telling people about a role that's not yet posted. But um, in a lot of ways, it's that creativity that really works in, in changing kind of the narrative of how things play out, for sure. I'm glad you're trying it too.
1: Yeah. How about, well, tell me more on the, um, the remote side. Is there anything different? as somebody who's been thinking about how to do a distributed workforce for much longer than COVID times? um, Are there anything different that that you all do?
2: Well, I think a lot of things are different, but a lot of things are pretty much the same. And it's kind of nice because when COVID hit, you don't have to change a thing about your hiring process, because any role that we post, with the exception of, say, an office manager, is generally going to be eligible to be remote. And so ultimately, any set of candidates that you have, it's actually harder when you create Parallel processes where historically, you know, you have a first round call and then maybe a take home assignment or a second round deeper dive call. And then you end up in this team panel stage, which is what we call an on site since there's no actual being quote unquote on site, um, but a virtual on site of sorts. And if we had a pool of candidates that were partially in San Francisco where our office is and partially, you know, distributed and remote around the world, what ends up happening is you have distinctive interview processes where some candidates get the chance to come in and visit the office in person and meet people in person, which has an impact. It could be, you know, good or bad, but some people never have that chance and they're fully remote. And the ability to build relationships looks a little bit different when you build them virtually versus on site. And so ultimately having everybody interview in a totally virtual way is much better for mitigating bias because there aren't some people who get a chance to kind of, physically shake hands, not that that's going to be a thing after COVID anymore, but physically kind of meet in person and see the space and connect with people and have those interactions. And, you know, I always talk about in, in past roles, there's all this kind of bias that you let in, like, oh, were they nice to the front desk manager as they were walking in? Um, you know, did they take their glass back to the sink? Are they responsible? Are they thinking about the business? Like some of those little nuanced things that people will let get into the way of their scorecards or the decision-making processes during onsite interviews, they're totally gone when everything is virtualized. Um, and they're equitable across all of the candidates, whether they're on site or not. So in, in many ways, I actually think it's quite better to be totally remote. But of course, that's not realistic in a place where you're trying to also sell an office culture uh, when you have an on an office opportunity.
1: Can, can I ask, how, how do you guys think about onboarding people once you've because uh, I'm hearing this from a lot of companies who are saying, well, no, we're still hiring. But now I've got to figure out how do I onboard somebody into the community of the company when they're just going to be on Zoom? How how have you guys solved that challenge?
2: Yeah. So all of our onboarding has been remote and virtual pretty much since the start of having an onboarding program, with the exception of if you're physically in office, you get an office tour. So that's really the only difference. One of the unique things about being globally distributed versus maybe just remote, like some companies that are in person might be remote, but they're all maybe in the same time zone. Um, they're just working from home right now. And when we're globally distributed, you've got time zone issues. So when the person in San Francisco who runs onboarding wakes up in the morning and starts their day, it's already the end of day for someone in in Europe and in someone in, in APAC. The day is over. They're in tomorrow morning already. And so how do you really meet people so that they get to have their first day experience and make it equitable so that no matter where someone's based, they get that same great experience? So we've actually... Uh, created an online program that's completely self-paced and automated where we've got video content and documents and we're still optimizing it because it's a lot of information overload, especially if you're doing it alone without that in-person interaction. Um, But everything is done in an automated way so that the person can start their day on their own time zone and kind of follow through the whole process and find ways to connect with people. And then we create some things that are a little more customized, like having uh, a virtual buddy. So that buddy might be the completely ad hoc personalized experience where you're talking to a real human, but the information is happening in a super automated way. Um, And then as far as kind of equipment, which is another big question people always have you know thoughts on. Is We ship everything to people's homes, and we always have done that. I will say you have to get really good at working with your partners and vendors in order to make sure that you've got enough supplies to meet your onboarding needs. So being you know, successful at forecasting is going to be really critical to making sure that everyone has a great onboarding experience. But 100% automation um, is the way to go for virtualizing it and, and making it sustainable in the long run.
1: Neat. I mean, I think that's... Uh... There's clearly levels of nuance there that I think the rest of us haven't figured out. Most people are like, well, all the onboarding meetings we used to do, we just do on Zoom. But I think the idea of um, solving the time zone thing is a whole extra level of complexity that people haven't quite grappled yeah. with.
2: Time zones are the biggest challenge to date. So I've been doing, you know, t- remote work and distributed teams work for a people role for, gosh, five years now. Um, and. That is the one thing I cannot solve and especially in these times as people a lot of times are kind of a little bit like a diaspora happening where people are leaving large cities and going back to their parents' house to live there for a while or finding a lower cost place to live and enjoying some time in a quiet Airbnb for a month or two while they can. And it's really hard to navigate the challenges of collaboration when people aren't working at the same times of day. So it's certainly the, probably the, the biggest challenge, either you have to ask everybody to conform to a certain set of times and that might not be comfortable for all, or you have to recognize that asynchronous communication is something that you have to really invest in in a thoughtful way. But um, there's no easy, easy way to solve for that. That's
1: interesting. Well, so we'll keep expanding on that uh, in just a moment, but first we're gonna take a quick break want to find out how effective your company is at hiring? Then you're ready to take the Greenhouse Hiring Maturity Assessment at greenhouse.io/hma. After you take the assessment, we'll send you specific ideas and strategies to help you take your company to the next level of hiring. Take the free 5-minute assessment today at greenhouse.io/hma. First impressions set the stage for the entire candidate interview process for both candidates and recruiters. Calendly saves you back-and-forth interview scheduling emails by giving candidates the power to choose their preferred time to meet. Calendly is updated live, so you can prevent double booking. And since they're only choosing from times you know work for your whole team, your company can accelerate time to hire with efficiency. Connecting quickly with your candidates is as easy as sharing your Calendly link. That's why thousands of hiring teams use Calendly. It just works. Try it for free at Calendly.com. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-L-Y.com. Okay, let's jump back into the conversation. I want to ask one more question about uh, distributed working. I mean, I feel like there's always been a handful of companies like yours who said, listen, we're committed to distributed, and you kind of attract people who specifically want that. Because there's definitely a percentage of people who are like, I want that. Right now, I feel like there's a whole pile of people, like say me, for instance, who don't want that, (laughs) but are being forced into it. Have you developed like guidelines or help to like help people figure out here's how to work productively in a distributed environment?
2: Gosh, yeah. I mean, so so maybe first before answering that question, I would I would point to a couple of things. One is um, you know, when you think about why you really like working in an office environment, like what are those reasons? And generally, People will share things that aren't going to be possible in a post-COVID world—at least not until there are, you know, vaccines and all of these things that will make it safe to have more personal contact. And so, when our team, you know, our our leadership team also, with the exception of me, is actually all based in the Bay Area, and when they. Um, we're talking about wanting to reopen and pushing a reopening, I explained, like, we're not going to have catered lunch for everyone sitting around tables talking together. Like, that's not going to be a thing. You're going to be spaced out in your desks. You're going to have an assigned phone booth that you can use for that day. Like, there are going to be a lot of precautions in order to make sure that the space is safe. And then everyone sort of was like, oh, no, 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 that's not what I want. What I want is that interaction with humans. And so ultimately, what you want to find is new ways of reinventing interactions with humans in a way that kind of helps people feel not only productive in their jobs and able to really not see those roadblocks and how they get their jobs done, but also makes them feel a sense of inclusion um, within the company culture and and feel psychological safety to do their best work and to take risks and all those things. And that is harder to do when you are remote. You have to be extremely intentional about how you do everything. And then the other thing I would just mention as a side note, which is I did a podcast or a webinar when when COVID first started, like the day things shut down, I did a a podcast. um, And that day we talked about how remote work was going to look. And I was so excited for people to see the value of it, because I had not experienced what life was like after everything was really shut down and people were social distancing. And then a few weeks in, I realized, oh no, people are going to be having a terrible experience working remote because they're also in the middle of a pandemic and social distancing. And some of the things that I really recommend people do when they work remotely in order to find that balance and that sense of, of you know, peace and productivity in their own workspace, aren't really possible when you've been sort of forced into it and you can't go do other things that would typically bring you that outside balance in your life. And so I, I think that there's going to be a curve basically if, it, if I don't know where we are on the curve, I think it depends on different people, but this notion that um, they might conflate remote work with what it feels like to work in a pandemic, which is not the same thing. And so recognizing that the things that we're doing today, even with a team that's been remote for seven plus years, um, are now kind of being reimagined in a world where we're also thinking about mental health issues and social distancing and all of the changes in policies and programs to support parents during this time and, and all the pieces that are sort of playing into this bigger dynamic.
1: So what you're saying is recording a podcast from a closet with some questionably smelling <laughs> shoes is not representative of distributed work. <laughs>
2: I mean, maybe a podcast is always better in a studio and or closet, but, but for sure. I mean, I think, I, I think about like my life pre-COVID, my, my stressors, if I had a busy day at work, I would go to a great gym class and see people there. I would go out to dinner with my partner. Those things are not available. And so you leave your workspace and you maybe if you're in a large city, walk two steps over to in your studio apartment to your living space and you don't see that separation. And that's a really important and healthy thing to find. And so encouraging people to recognize that that's just the normalcy of what we're living in right now now and it's not necessarily how remote work is all the time and then how do you design for both the current situation and the future world when you can go back into your normal lives but yeah no I mean closets I I highly uh, (laughs) recommend uh, finding some space that is just yours that you can make Customized and bring a lot of joy to. Even during COVID, I had an office space that's like an old bedroom upstairs in my house. And um, I have old furniture in here. There was nothing inspiring about it, but I didn't really care because it was sort of a quiet workspace. And then I would leave it. But recognizing that I am always in my house right now, um, I invested in like a beautiful, you can't see it because we're all on just sound here, but a beautiful backdrop of gallery art that makes me really happy and a hot pink rug and I painted an accent wall. And those tiny things make a really big difference in enjoying the space that you're working in. And I, I get that that's a privilege that not everyone has in their space. And so even if it's a closet, like making it feel comfortable and exciting.
1: <laughs> I'm cracking up. I'll send you a picture afterwards of where I, it's, I, just, where I recorded this podcast. It's, it's not a lot of joy in this closet. Maybe um, bring
2: a plant in that doesn't need a lot of light.
1: Right? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate this. this
2: really <laughs> um, how about uh,
1: let's turn our attention to, uh, you know, what what does success look like in a year for you all? Where where are you currently evolving? You know, you mentioned it's been a year and a half since you started, probably kind of from from nowhere. Sounds like you guys have gotten pretty good. What's what's next?
2: Yeah. Thank you. I mean. I, it's nice to step back and kind of look at how much progress we have made because, in the thick of it, I do not feel that way. I I'm often sure. feel like, oh gosh, like we're chaotic every other hour and then we're um, systematic or strategic in some pieces. But I think I took our assessment, the, the greenhouse assessment, um, and recognized that we're systematic in three of our four areas with inconsistency still in operational excellence. And I think our goal is really setting that goal and then working backwards to figure out how we get there, which is to become strategic in at least half the areas by the end of you know, the next six to 12 months, and then over time move to being purely strategic and really systematic and consistent in how we work. Um, I think recognizing also, and I would say this to anyone listening at home, to celebrate the wins that you do have because ultimately it might feel like I when I took this assessment I was actually quite happy because I was convinced we were going to come out chaotic still because that's how I feel sometimes but really getting a chance to sort of acknowledge some of the great like strides that we have made that have helped us are are so huge and so ultimately I think that there's a lot of opportunity in celebrating the small wins but still setting our eyes on something a little bit bigger Um, and so for us I think my, my biggest things are three. So one is, I hope we can staff up our team. And I want to just give a shameless plug. We are currently hiring a senior technical recruiter for Webflow. And if this interests you at all, what I'm sharing about how our team operates, would love to invite you to apply. Um, and recognizing that we've had 12,000 people apply to our open roles since we opened our hiring floodgates in July, we actually paused our hiring, um, not paused it, but slowed it to essential roles only with the time COVID hit to end of July when we realized that Webflow is actually performing better during the pandemic than we were previously. And we have a chance to really invest in our team at this time. Um, So we've had 12,000 people apply to our open roles. um, And I recognize that we do not have a great experience for 100% of our candidates. And we have a responsibility to create an excellent experience for 100% of our candidates. We really started with sort of the back end of things, which are a little bit uh, less interesting or exciting from like an employment brand standpoint, but really making sure our processes were mitigating bias and we're structured and we're consistent. That was really our, our top goal. And now that we've done that, we're looking at really how can we optimize to have you know, a more thoughtful funnel of hiring? How can we think through all these things? But parallel, how can we create a better experience for our candidates? Too often does someone kind of feel like, why did it take me this long to hear back about the next step or whatever that thing might be? And, and really getting to the bottom of all those things. And so I think really the way I want to get there is by using the data that we now have. So again, pre-ATS, pre-applicant tracking system, we didn't really have access to any data that told us how we were doing. We only had anecdotal stories of who we actually hired. And that can really bias you towards thinking everything's great because people who get hired generally have a great experience and people who don't, what you want is for them to have also a great experience, but that's not always the case. And until you can really start tracking who doesn't get hired and how their experience goes, it's really hard to see the full picture. And so I think, you know, again, step one is really staffing up the team so that we can ensure a great process. And then from there, using data to inform kind of how we can optimize and improve different parts of our hiring process so that we are squarely strategic and how we think about our work. I know that was a pretty all-around intensive question um, <laughs> slash answer, I guess, but yeah. hopefully that helps.
1: No, it's neat. I mean, it's. Uh, I think one of the themes we've that, that kind of we always tease apart within this podcast is that uh, you have to separate the like day-to-day chaos of running a recruiting operation where there's. Always candidates to be scheduled and offers to go out and scorecards to be filled out um, with like stepping away from that and doing like the meta thing of like, how are we doing process wise overall? What is the maturity of our organiz- of our of our function? Um, and it's sometimes hard to separate those two things and you get sucked into the first one and don't get to work, work, uh, work on the second one.
2: Yes, I always say you have to see the forest for the trees, and it's trite, but it's true. But then also recognizing if you only see the forest, you may not pick the right trees to focus in on. So kind of using, you know, every little bit of input or insight you have to, to make the best decisions for you, but stepping back every once in a while and, you know, one, recognizing how far you've come, and then, and then two, figuring out the best possible, most strategic ways to make investments in the future.
1: There you go. I mean, I think that, that ultimately, like, I think that it becomes the thing that separates the orgs who make who, who really get there versus the ones who continue to struggle is it's really easy to get to stuck in the, the daily chaos um, and the people who are able to step back and say, well, wait, what three things can we get better at this quarter? And if we just get better at three things every quarter, like after two years, like that's a lot of stuff you got better at, you know?
2: A hundred percent. There's actually um, a leather small goods company called Kuyana, which I don't know if you've heard of them, but their their tagline is fewer better things. And I try to like leave that as a mantra for myself as well. And it applies to so many other things besides a wardrobe. So I, I like to kind of take that and call myself whenever something feels really, really unruly or too hard to solve.
1: Yeah. We are the one at Greenhouse is always uh, you. You can do anything, but you can't do everything.
2: I love it. Yes, that is so important to remember.
1: A great greenhouse internal wisdom. Um, <laughs> well, let's 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 pivot onto the the lightning round. We have a couple of quick questions that I always like to ask people, um, and who knows what we'll learn. So, first is best HR tech tool other than Greenhouse, of course.
2: Oh gosh, um, that is a hard question. Okay, can I share two? Go for it. Okay. So one, Bravely. Bravely is a tool that allows people to get support during challenges at work and in times of need. It's amazing. And it is more critical this year than ever when employees are facing all sorts of mental health issues and work crises going remote. Uh, Bravely is the best investment I made pre-COVID and it is paying dividends right now.
1: That's a great plug. Thank you for doing that one.
2: Yes. I love Bravely. Um, and, And number two, I would say is Lattice. So the reason why I say lattice is because they are growing, and this is a pun that I intend. They have a new feature called grow, a new product area called Grow, which is basically operationalizing career pathways. And so it's to me this continuation after greenhouse. You attract these great people into your company, and you really want to see them thrive. How do you responsibly help them understand what their pathways could look like at your company so that you retain them? Because ultimately, retaining people and helping them grow and develop is always a much more efficient process than having to do a bunch of backfills back on the talent side. So Lattice is growing in this beautiful direction that I'm super supportive of.
1: That's awesome. Another good one. How how about uh, as you think back to building your recruiting operation, the biggest mistake you'll never make again?
2: Oh, gosh. So I've made this mistake twice. Uh, so I hope I never make it again, but I said I would never make it again last time and I, I did it again. Um, but that's not hiring the talent team ahead of the rest of the roles you have in your hiring plan. Um, it's really hard to launch an open talent role the minute you have the absolute need for it because you're probably hiring a bunch of other roles as well. And suddenly you can't focus on your own team. And so sort of put the mask on yourself before you put the mask on the other so that you can kind of breathe and take care of your team.
1: Excellent. That's a good one. How about biggest mistake you'll definitely make again?
2: (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's see. Uh, I would say spending money. So I think you have to be wise and intentional, but I come from higher education and university administration where you're given a very strict budget and it doesn't change until the next year. And I was always very thoughtful around how can I get like the cheapest possible way from A to B. And I came into tech and I realized, oh, gosh, like it's actually much better to find creative ways to get things done. And cost efficiency isn't less money. Cost efficiency is making strategic investments and the things that will help you get stuff done faster and better. And so I would say, don't be afraid to to spend money. And I am trying to make that mistake more often.
1: That's a good one. That's a really good one. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where I think uh, people get beat into them, like don't spend anything. And the thing is, the problems we're solving can be so valuable, especially in these, in these tech companies where like the difference between not making it and making it are so huge in value that like a couple thousand dollars extra here and there to like get that right higher can more than pay for itself.
2: They're like complete hidden costs and not spending money. So right. by not spending money, like what are you actually going to lose? And is that worth it? Um, so ultimately, like people kind of just look at the dollar for dollar amount, as opposed to understanding the total cost of not making the investment for sure.
1: Yeah. Good one. How about uh, a piece of advice for somebody who's becoming a head of recruiting for the first time?
2: Oh gosh. Let's see. There are so many pieces of advice that I could give here. Um, I would say one one that I would definitely recommend is to think long-term. So before you start saying yes to a new initiative or approving a salary increase outside of a band or, or whatever it is that's kind of facing you in that day-to-day stressor that we're thinking about, like when we're looking at the trees, not the forest, ask yourself, what does this look like when your company has many multiples of what it is today? How does this choice or this decision to invest in this thing or not invest uh, impact what we're going to do in the long run? Um, because the shorter term the decision is, the more obstacles you're going to see and the faster you're going to have to rebuild whatever you did in the first place and create like a 2.0 version of it. And so definitely trying to imagine, does this scale with us when we're two times the size we are today? Or am I going to have to redo it if I do it this way?
1: Oh, that's a great answer. We've seen so many people who, You know, solve today's problem with some short term decision and realize six months later, like, oh, God, what precedent did I set?
2: Exactly. Precedents are dangerous. Um, And I would just add to that. I know this is supposed to be a lightning round, but just adding to that is this idea that there are other partners that you have that you're impacting when you make short choices based on your own interests. And to be truly strategic, like the thing that separates people from just being a head of recruiting to being like an executive level head of recruiting is their ability to see things at the company level. So I always like to say, like, managers think about their people directors think about their teams and executives really think about the company at large first. And so really integrating, yeah, closing this candidate day is going to help you, but does that help the company? And what are you sort of setting everybody else up for when you make that choice? And so recognizing kind of the bigger picture of things is the best way to position yourself for executive success.
1: Right. It's uh, it's, it's a great answer. There's so many times you see somebody say, oh, this person, you know, we want to land this, this, um, this candidate. And so we're going to go outside of our bands and we're going to make an exception, give them what they want. So we can hire them. And in, in, in immediately you're not thinking about like all the people who there's now inequity of other folks who are doing the same job for a lot less money. And you're like, Ooh,
2: yes. And then when you go do? down on the team who was a counterpart and learns that salary or whatever it is, and suddenly you're like, Oh gosh, yes. Walking yourself out of mistakes. It's, it's an integrity thing, but it's also like a realistic problem. Um, for sure.
1: Oh, it's a good one. How about last one? It's a hiring podcast. So tell me the most, the hire you're most proud of.
2: Oh gosh, I am proud of a lot of hires. Uh, I will say, I would just say, when I say I'm proud of a lot of hires, I I believe that one of my skill sets is spotting talent in strange places and looking at non-traditional profiles and seeing potential in somebody that they might not see in themselves. And so one person um, that I would maybe share is... So Sarah. So Sarah is somebody that I actually internally sourced at my last company. So at my last company, I knew I needed a first recruiter. Remember, I was the first head of talent. At my last company too. And at some point, I knew I needed a first recruiter. And at the same time, our VP of sales was transitioning out of the company. And his EA was a big question mark in what would happen as he left the company. And she really joined to support him. She had worked with him prior. But I knew she had all the skills to be an excellent recruiting professional. She understood our organization and its roles. She was great at logistics and detail orientation with scheduling. She did that all the time as an EA. She knew all the stakeholders. And she knew how to influence them as an EA. And she'd been leading uh, recruiting for the VP of sales for longer than i had even been at the company. So she knew the institutional history. So when he was announcing his departure, I kind of asked, hey, would you be interested in being a recruiter with me? And I was originally just thinking a business recruiter focused on that same sales team, maybe adding in some marketing or customer success. But ultimately she expressed interest in the technical recruiting side. And so by the end of our time working together, She was this really incredible consultative recruiter who worked with technical hires that she had never seen, you know, a year prior. Um, And she was challenging everyone in the best possible ways, including me. And ultimately, now she's moved on to a role at a much larger company where she is an internal executive recruiter. And she's able to put her deep knowledge of her EA time and working with executives, as well as her holistic recruiting skills that she's gained. And she's really a powerhouse that you would not have seen coming if you had just looked at what job title had they held before. And so I think, for me at least, Sarah is a really great example of recognizing that the person who could be the best fit for the role that you have doesn't actually necessarily have to hold that same job title today or any job title that you would have expected. And it's really important to kind of look everywhere, including inside your organization for who could be great talent for your roles. And then lastly, I would just say like, we have this great opportunity. I mean, it's why I got into recruiting in the first place is this opportunity to fundamentally change the trajectory of how someone spends half of their waking hours. That's so meaningful. Like the job that someone takes changes the course of their life in many ways. And we have this great both re- responsibility and opportunity to shift that for someone. And it's funny, I, I actually reached out to, to Sarah recently to check in and see how she was doing. And she said, she's so happy in her career and she had bounced around a ton prior to her role in recruiting. And she really found her fit and she wouldn't have done that if she didn't take a chance on a role that was completely outside, you know, her, her previous resume. And so really looking for opportunity everywhere is the most proud thing. I think we do in our work. That's
1: awesome. That's a, that's a great way to finish that. I, I, Totally agree. And I feel like it takes so much pride in people like that, where you realize like, God, look at the impact I got to have on that person. Totally.
2: I'm glad you think it's awesome. I I love those. They're my favorite stories.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think we've gotten to the end. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is great.
2: I really appreciate it, John. It was so much fun to join you here. And I hope you're enjoying the closet.
1: (laughs) Oh man, my feet are asleep. I'm dying here.
0: Thanks for listening to Hiring Maturity Success Stories on the Greenhouse podcast, Hiring for What's Next. Wondering how to start optimizing your own company's hiring? Take the Greenhouse Hiring Maturity Assessment now at greenhouse.io HMA. Don't miss a moment of hiring for what's next. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts for the latest episodes.